So, you know, we were looking around at, well, how does nature work? What are the templates? And they're really fairly simple. I mean, uh, one is that there's no animalist ecology, so we need animals. And number two is nature doesn't plow. So let's get rid of the plow and let's go to perennials. Nature doesn't move carbon very far, so let's compost instead of buying chemical fertilizers. So, you know, we bought a wood chipper so we could generate our own carbon on the farm and do large-scale composting, which we did. And, you know, nature doesn't ship very far, so we began building a, a local customer base. These were just basic templates that we saw as we looked at natural patterns and said, so how can we duplicate that, you know, on our own farm? Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands which are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Joel Salatin, American farmer, lecturer, author, and the owner of the family-operated farm, Polyface Farms, the farm of many faces. Welcome, Joel. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Humans in history were primarily hunter-gatherers. Um, then in the Neolithic era, when they were less nomadic, they started more permanent forms of agriculture. Fast forward today, the way people eat, the way we farm, has changed more in the past 60-odd years than it did in the past, say, a thousand years. Would you agree with that? <laughs> yes, I, I absolutely I would. I mean, the chemicalization, mechanization, and routinization, you know, have been dramatic in agriculture. I will say that in addition, our capacity to harm has actually accelerated with all of this. With our technology, it has accelerated not only our capacity to harm, but also, fortunately, our capacity to heal. You know, that's the great uh, tension that we're in right now. We've never been able to destroy so fast, but we've also never been able to heal so fast. While we can be depressed about the first part <laughs> that we can uh, destroy so fast, we can be very encouraged and hopeful about the second part that uh, we can also heal faster than ever before. So let's start at the very beginning. Your parents, Lucille and William Salatin, moved to Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. Where did they move from? They moved here from Venezuela, South America. <laughs> That's a little interesting story. Mom and dad were both uh, Midwesterners. Dad wanted to have a farm, but as a poor Midwestern boy, how do you start farming when you don't have a grub stake or a nest egg or anything? So after World War II, he flew bombers in the Navy in World War II. After the war, he got his business management degree and then went as a bilingual accountant. He went to uh, Middlebury in Vermont, studied Spanish for a semester, hitchhiked to Mexico for six months. Six months to hitchhike. He went down to Mexico, lived for six months, and then he sat for the foreign civil service exam in Spanish, passed at the first get-go, and went as a bilingual accountant for Texas Oil Company. Just, it was the beginning of OPEC, it was 1947, 48, and they were beginning there in, um, off of the coast of Venezuela. And in seven years, he was able to save up enough money to buy a thousand acre farm there in the highlands of uh, Venezuela. We began farming. Then came the revolution, the Junta of Pérez Jiménez in 1959. And uh, we could not get protection. We were vulnerable there. We were Americans, but we were not civil servants, missionaries, or diplomats. And um, he had already irritated the local farmers by taking away a bunch of their chicken market at the local market because our chickens were clean and theirs were dirty. 
And so basically we fled the front doors, the machine guns came in the back door, uh, stayed there for another six months trying to get protection, could not get any protection. So finally we walked away, lost everything, gave everything away and uh, came back on a ship arriving back in the U.S. Easter Sunday, 1961, and began looking at farms. Dad was still hoping to go back. So we looked at farms within a day's drive of Washington, D.C., and uh, that's how we settled here in the Shenandoah Valley in the worn-out, gullied, rock-piled farm. But it was cheap, so we settled here. How old were you at that time? I was four. So you went through all this when you were four, coming over on the boat and um, just losing everything. I actually spoke Spanish before English. You know, when we came back, mom and dad tried to maintain it in the home, but being just four years old, I didn't know when to turn the dial off or on, and so I would just break out in Spanish in, you know, the grocery store or, or church or whatever. And, you know, this was 1961, McCarthyism, Cold War, and we were in this very conservative community, and people didn't know what Spanish was, and uh, they thought something was wrong, and or we were communist spies or something. So uh, after, actually, two weeks after we moved in here, the Ku Klux Klan burned a bale of hay on our in our lane so that we would know that, that the community knew that we were communist spies. That's a kind of interesting side story, but it was a conservative community. So they quit speaking Spanish in the home so we wouldn't get bullied and, and laughed at in school. So coming back to the land, you said that it was pretty arid. What was it like? Do you recall? Oh, yes, I sure do. I was little, but, you know, we... We spent a lot of time outside, and uh, the the land that we bought, one of the reasons we bought it was we, we kind of called it the armpit of the community. It was a rock pile, some you know three to five feet of soil had eroded away. There were gullies. The deepest gully we measured was 16 feet. I mean, that's from the top of the gully to the bottom of it. That's a, you just can hardly imagine the amount of soil, and the, the hillsides were just these gullies. And there were large areas of rock in the fields. There was no soil. I mean, it, just nothing but rock, no weeds, no nothing. I could walk the whole farm and never set foot on a piece of vegetation. It was that barren. Even though, you know, we're in a very verdant, temperate area here, the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, this farm had been, this piece of land had been abused for a long time before we came. So how large was the farm then? Yes. Yeah, so the original tract that mom and dad bought was 550 acres. And uh, at that time, it was listed. <laughs> the realtor listed it as 160 acres of open land and um, 400 roughly of forest. And uh, over the next 10 years, we actually reforested about 60 acres, these steep hillsides. We planted trees. I call the first decade that we were here from 1961 to 71, I call it the decade of conservation. Now, dad was a, he was a genius. Uh, I'm at the age now where, you know, the older I get, the smarter dad was. He was truly a genius. And early on, you know, as an economist, he understood that as a small farm, we could not compete on the commodity exchange because the margins were too small. We couldn't grow enough stuff, pounds, bushels, whatever. We couldn't grow enough stuff at low margins to make a living with a small farm. So he understood very quickly that we had to become the middleman. We had to become the processor, the distributor, the marketer. 
in addition to the producer. So we wore all those middleman hats. He understood that. We didn't really get things implemented until, you know, almost 10 years till after we were here till we could actually kind of get the erosion stopped and do some experimenting on production models and start those other aspects of the thing. So the first 10 years, I call it the, the years of conservation. Probably the next 10 years, you know, 70 to into 80 were certainly uh, years of, of experimentation. And then uh, I came back to the farm September 24, 1982, and uh, you know, left a town job, came home full-time at that point. And um, Teresa and I had gotten married in 1980, and essentially, if we didn't grow it or kill it, we didn't eat it. We ate from the garden. We ate from our fields. We had our own firewood. We lived in an attic in the farmhouse. We lived on $300 a month, drove a $50 car. We were committed to this, and um, we had accumulated a nest egg that was enough that I felt like we could live for one year here, even if things didn't go real well. So by living very cheaply, we were able to accumulate a little nest egg. I was a newspaper reporter at the local daily newspaper, and um, I walked out of there, left that paycheck, and everybody thought I was the biggest fool in the world to go to farming, leaving a, you know, a steady paycheck. But for me, the opportunity was if we couldn't make it and we ran through our nest egg and I had to go back to work, I was happy to do anything. I don't mind pushing concrete. I don't mind washing dishes. And I realized how employable I was because I was willing to do anything and actually, you know, not dumb either. You know, I was able to think through things. And so I realized how employable I was. That gave me the courage to jump off that cliff and come back to the farm full-time, even when we didn't really have a going concern. Coming back to your dad as an economist, realized that the only way he could survive is through vertical integration. Yes. And you are married to Teresa, who supported you, and you came back. And is that when the whole regenerative farming started? or? Yeah, so back in the early 60s, Dad was an experimenter. He viewed chemical agriculture as a drug addiction. You know, you have to get harsher and stronger, more toxic chemicals, whether it's fertilizer, herbicide, pesticide, whatever it is, uh, you have to get, they're more expensive and more toxic to get the same kick. It's, it's a lot like a, a drug trip. That's around 1961, right? Yes. In that period, synthetic fertilizers and chemical pesticides were really, really popular. and. From what I believe, in probably from 1964 to 72, in fact, their use doubled. Yeah, that was very unpopular at that time. I mean, but he viewed chemical as a kind of um, not only a drug addiction, but also a rat race that you could never chemicalize your way into, you know, into prosperity, into abundance, into healing. You just, you just couldn't. So, you know, we were looking around at, well, how does nature work? What are the templates? And they're really fairly simple. I mean, uh, one is that there's no animalist ecology, so we need animals. Number two is nature doesn't plow. So let's get rid of the plow and let's go to perennials. Nature doesn't move carbon very far. So let's compost instead of buying chemical fertilizers. So, you know, we bought a wood chipper so we could generate our own carbon on the farm and do large scale composting, which we did. And, you know, nature doesn't ship very far. So we began building a, a local customer base. These were just basic templates that we saw as we looked at natural patterns and said, so how can we duplicate that, you know, on our own farm? 
So would that comprise of regenerative farming or is that natural farming? I don't care what you want to call it. I like to call it profitable farming, but <laughs> you can call it anything. The, the, the point is that we're not building soil and increasing earthworms and generating more biomass every year. We're going backwards, not forwards. That's the basic idea. And now here we are, you know, 60 years later, and the rocks are covered up with soil. The gullies have all stopped eroding, and we planted trees on them. Some of them we bulldozed shut, and they've turned into fields. We've built dozen ponds. This piece of property has gone from the worst one in the community now to arguably the most productive one. So how did you build up the soil? Um, You said you use earthworms, you don't plow. (laughs) Right, so nature builds soil with carbon. Now that carbon can, you know, be normally it's produced on site and it's produced when the plants are pruned or mowed or grazed, actually prunes off root mass to mimic so that there's bilateral symmetry between what's above the ground, what you can see, and what's below the ground, what you can't see. And we call that pulsing. It's like a, it's like a heartbeat, a pulsing of the pasture where you're pulsing this organic matter into the soil. That's what actually builds the soil. And so when we quit plowing, well, I mean, we never plowed, but when the plowing stopped, then we went to perennials with very uh, managed grazing. So we moved the cows every day from spot to spot, and that encourages the forage, the biomass to grow way more than when the cows are on it all the time and and in a continuous grazing. Again, in nature, the wildebeest on the Serengeti, you notice they're moving, they're mobbing, and they're mowing, moving, mobbing, mowing. Those are the three pillars of the prairie herbivorous symbiosis that builds the deepest soils on the planet. The deepest soils on the planet are not under forests and they're not under bushes, they're under prairies with the herbivores and predators on top. Well, we don't have the predators here, but what we do have is portable electric fencing. So early on in the early 1960s, dad began experimenting with portable electric fencing systems so that we could move the cows. And gradually we started moving them more frequently, more frequently, more frequently until, you know, by the time I was a late teen, we were actually moving them almost every day. Now we do move them every day. And so that constant movement is what stimulates the forage to grow more biomass, to exude more root mass, which then actually adds to the soil. And so these big rock areas literally healed just like a wound on your hand. If you have a wound on your hand, it heals from the outside in. So every year, the soil will build up over the edge of these rocks. You know, you can see it come in foot or 12, 18 inches, and it would just gradually come in, come in, come in until, you know, by probably around the year 2000, 20 years ago, they were all covered up and the soil wasn't very deep, but they were all covered up. The other thing that we did was we began large scale composting. I said we had a chipper. So when we'd work in that, we had a lot of woods, we had a lot of forest. And we had a lot of, you know, dead, dying, crooked, junky trees. And so we would thin, we would weed, we would upgrade in in the woods, and uh, we would chip those junky trees, crooked trees, things like that, chip them, and use them as bedding under the livestock in the winter. When we brought the cows in to feed hay, we'd use it as a carbonaceous diaper to soak up the manure and urine from the winter load of the animals. And then we use that as compost and spread it on the fields 
And that added an additional amount of carbon to what the grassroots were giving the soil. And so the combination of the animal movement, the biomass production, and the composting all added enough carbon over time to actually build new soil. So did they have employees or did they work on these 550 acres by themselves? (laughs) Well, Dad experimented a lot of things. We never made a living on the farm. Dad was an accountant. Mom was a high school physical education teacher, and so they used their off-farm income to pay the mortgage. That took 10 years to to pay off the farm. Every penny went to the mortgage. We finally got it paid off by the early 1970s. Well, then we were a little more free to do some more experimentation and invest in some, you know, things like the chipper. And uh, we we built a couple interesting, uh, you know, uh, dump trailers and some other things. And just to do some experimenting, what, you know, kind of throwing things against the wall and what works and what doesn't work. And so we did that through the 70s. And that was all done with family. There was certainly no money to pay an employee. It was just whatever we could do. And, uh, you know, I chopped thistles and we planted garden and we milked a couple cows. You know, we basically tried to feed ourselves. And if we had some extra to, to sell, we did. We'd sell a handful of calves every year, and that kind of paid the taxes. But the farm was not a going concern until I came back in September 24, 1982. When I came back, that's when we started Polyface. We incorporated for tax reasons. And that's when we said, okay, now we can be a going concern. And it took Teresa and I about uh, you know three years before we realized that we would actually be successful. We, it, was, it was pretty uh, touchy there uh, in those early couple of years. By the time we were three or four years in, we knew it was going to go, and we were pretty excited about it. You mentioned that you don't plow your land. What do you do about the weeds? Well, native prairie has up to more than 40 species of plants per acre. So most weeds are actually, you know, have different medicinal properties. They have, they concentrate different nutrients. And so our basic position is if an animal will eat it, it's not a weed. It's a diversified plant. So we actually relish, uh, relish the diversified forage canopy, if you will, on the soil so that when you look out across our fields, it's not a monoculture. It's not a single plant. It's a diversity of uh, legumes, grasses, forbs, what you would call, you know, maybe broadleaf weeds. But hey, all of these serve a different purpose. They pull different things from the soil. They put different things into the soil. They have different ratios of minerals and nutrients and vitamins in them for the animals. And so we believe very strongly that a diversified plant community actually creates a more balanced, diversified animal community, which then when we eat the animals or these plants, we actually give our microbiome a greater amount of diversity, which then creates the complexity to allow our brains to function with diversified thinking instead of monothought thinking. That seems like a lot of uh, threads to link together. But um, we know that our gut is directly linked to our emotional and cognitive function. And our gut needs a lot of you know, diversity in it to fulfill the needs of all the varied uh, needs and desires of the microbiome. This complexity is not just an academic focus group discussion. It's very practical and very real. 
Now on Polyface Farms, what do you raise and grow? We're primarily, you know, we do have our garden and we have fruit trees and things like that for our own use, but we're essentially in the pastured livestock business. So we have beef, pork, chicken eggs, duck eggs, chicken broilers, that'd be meat chickens, turkeys, lamb, and of course, and rabbit, and forestry products. So we're, we're in a pretty diversified food and fiber deal. Mm-hmm. So it's obvious that you're not giving any hormones to the animals or antibiotics or any other medicines, which would pass on when it's eaten by people. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. We believe very uh, strongly that nature is fundamentally well. And that's pretty different than the conventional orthodox uh, narrative today in agriculture, which believes that nature is fundamentally flawed and we have to fix it or heal it. We have to tinker with nature because nature is fundamentally ill or sick or scarce, you know, non-abundant. We believe that nature is fundamentally well and fundamentally abundant. And so it's our imperative to actually study nature's principles and come alongside, rather than a a wrestler, come alongside as a lover uh, to caress this abundant, pleasant partner as an ally rather than a foe and caress it into more abundance. So do you have a wide variety of, for instance, say cows? The only varieties I know are Jersey and Holstein. Uh, so, yeah, so we have, when, when people ask me, well, what breed of cows do you have? We're in beef cows, of course. And um, I always tell people, well, we try to use anything that, that's not black. You know, we have red ones and tan ones and brown ones and all that. But we, we're not breed specific. We're, we're much more interested in phenotype and phenotype than actual breeds. There are phenotypes that function well in across all breeds. And so it's imperative to find the phenotype that works rather than actually being cultish about a certain breed. So what is a phenotype? A phenotype is uh, your physical outline, what you look like. For example, a, a basketball center has a different phenotype than a sumo wrestler. Got it. <laughs> and you said you don't take black cows. Why is that? The skin color change affects... Yeah, the black animals get very hot in our hot summers here. And so when you're moving them every day, sometimes you're a little bit shade, shade compromised. And so we find that the the non-black animals, you know, you can put a laser thermometer on the hide of a black animal on a warm, you know, July summer day, and uh, it'll be 40 degrees hotter than a non-black animal. There's that much difference. So because we move them all the time and move them around, uh, we want an animal that's more adaptable to, you know, to heat variations uh, than one that, that every time the sun comes up, they've got to go find a shade tree somewhere. So as I mentioned, I'm a vegetarian. So what do you tell people who say that the raising livestock emits more carbon greenhouses than all modes of transportation combined? And a pound of meat uses about 2,500 gallons of water, according to the makers of the movie Cowspiracy. Oh, okay. Well, let's dig into that a little bit. The problem with Cowspiracy and What the Health and the UN Long Shadow Report and the Lancet and whatever other were these um, 
these animal-hating articles that you want to read. The problem with them is that they're using dysfunctional data points. So my tension when I read this stuff is I'm saying amen, amen, amen when they're talking about the, you know, the problems in the industry and the problems with the way animals are produced or, or handled, whether it's abuse or greenhouse gases or whatever. But the problem is that the answer is get rid of the animals. Well, the fact is that a thousand years ago, the planet had way more pounds of animal on it, including humans, than we do animals today. So clearly, the problem is not the animals. It's the way the animals are managed. So let me just give you one example. Grain-fed beef in a feedlot or dairy cows, either one. You feed it grain, you put it in this tight confinement situation, feed it grain, and the data points from that, including the methane produced, everything else, is negative. If you take that same animal and put it on a perennial, diversified pasture with good soil structure, that soil structure under perennial diversified uh, forages will create a habitat to support methanotrophic bacteria. These are bacteria that are freestanding bacteria. They're not, they're not hooked to plants. They're not hooked to roots. They're freestanding bacteria in the soil. If they're healthy, there's enough in the soil to handle the methane produced by a thousand cows per acre. Well, nobody's ever going to put a thousand cows on an acre. The point is, nature has this covered. Don't worry. Nature's got it well, well covered. The problem is, methanotrophic bacteria do not grow under corn. They do not grow under soybeans. They do not grow under, I feel like a Dr. Seuss, you know, I will not eat it in you know, green eggs <laughs> and ham. You know, they don't grow under corn, soybeans, a feedlot. They don't grow under parking lots, lawns, golf courses, or uh, anything like that. They grow only under healthy soiled perennial prairie polycultures. And so the problem with all of these anti-animal scientists is that they are using dysfunctional systems to create data points. And I agree, absolutely, in the negative aspects of the industrial conventional narrative. But again, the answer is not get rid of all the animals. The answer is let's use the animals like nature has for thousands and thousands of years in a positive, ecologically healing manner. So it's not the animal that's the problem. It's the management of the animal that's the problem. And that's why these natural templates, these patterns, if you will, are so critical. Goodness, when the scientists on the planet said for 30 years, told farmers like me to feed dead cows to our cows, we didn't do it on our farm, not because we hated science or hated progress. We didn't do it because we looked around the planet and said, show me an herbivore that eats carrion. And we couldn't find one. Now, we didn't know at the time that there would eventually be bovine spongiform encephalopathy, mad cow. We didn't know that. It was enough for us to know that there was no template in nature that made that possible. And so we didn't do it. And, you know, and then, of course, 30 years later, we found out when you aggressively violate nature's rules, nature bats last. That's exactly where we've come to. And I wanted to tell you on a side note, though I'm a vegetarian, I want my friends who eat meat to eat good meat. Thank you. That's very kind, very kind and gracious. 
Um, yeah. So where do you sell your products? Do you sell them locally? I would imagine because you want to limit your carbon footprint. Well, that's a very interesting question. We, for years, our mantra was always, you know, a totally local. So we have kind of, for many years, decades, we had kind of three legs. We sold here at the farm, obviously. People could come and, and buy stuff here at the farm. We have a farm store. We also sold to a lot of restaurants. Some of those, of course, are not going to survive COVID. Some of them will. And um, we supplied, you know, about 50 restaurants. And then we also, uh, one of our most innovative marketing aspects, years and years ago, we began doing delivery drops into the urban sector. And today, I think we have 31 of those. They're all within four hours. So our driver can go and come in one day. We don't want overnight driving. So uh, you can go and come in one day. And uh, we service these once a month throughout the year in the urban sector. So people order online, we put the orders together. So it's, it's a la carte, it's not a CSA, not a community supported agriculture, it's not a, not a subscription service, at least yet. It is simply a la carte, you order, we put the orders together and deliver them once a month to a drop point, usually somebody's house. Everybody meets us there at an appointed time and picks up their orders and it all works. Recently in 19, July 4th, we began launching a nationwide shipping initiative because we just found ourselves being outmaneuvered by Amazon, by ButcherBox, by these new you know shipping entities. And uh, we've always said nostalgia is wonderful. The only problem with nostalgia is you need to leave it before you become obsolete. <laughs> and, and so July 4th, last year, we began uh, selling nationwide. And that is just growing nicely. Uh, I think we sent out 30 orders today. We ship anywhere in the continental United States. And that has enabled us to offer an alternative to some of these other more compromised conventional brands that are selling you know, across the internet. So you and Teresa have been running the farm for over 35 years. And Polyface Farm is a model for other farms nationwide. Do you help coach, mentor other farmers who want to follow your mission and follow your path? First of all, you know, I've written 14 books, so we've tried to document and write about the things that we do. So there's lots of information in our books. There also, we've done audio books as well. And of course, all of them are available on uh, electronic format, Kindles. So we've done that from early on. You know, my first book, Pastured Poultry Profits, came out in 1993. So, you know, we've been at this for a long, long time of sharing our information. Uh, we're very into not patenting, but taking transparency and open sourcing. The second thing is that we do seminars here at the farm. These are uh, work, intimate two-day workshops with six meals. And uh, we, you know, we go behind the curtain and we cram every, we, we basically do a one-week a one-week seminar in two days called the Polyface Intensive Discovery Seminar. And uh, next summer, we will not be doing those because we'll be hosting a what we're calling the Stewardship Festival. It'll be a nationwide stewardship festival here at the farm. We're expecting probably 10,000 people. And um, it'll be showcasing all of the regenerative healing, arts, land, health, you know, everything you can imagine here. And we invite people to come to that. We also run 
a very formal apprenticeship program. So we have two levels of that. The first level is the stewardship program. These are stewards, and they come for five months from May 1 to September 30. And then out of that, we pick several apprentices who then stay on another year and become the first level managers of the following year's stewards. And that is germinating uh, new young farmers yearly, and we've been doing that for a very, you know, for a long time. Besides that, the farm is open. We have a 24-7, 365 open door policy. Anyone is welcome to come from anywhere in the world to see anything anywhere unannounced. There are no guard towers, no sign-in sheets, no sheep dip to walk through. We welcome anyone to come and see. And so we get, I don't know, 15,000 visitors a year. We do scheduled lunatic tours throughout the summer. Uh, these are two-hour hay wagon tours. Of course, I'm the resident lunatic, and uh, we do these tours. And so we're, we're very open, very transparent, and very. Um, we want people to, you know, to duplicate. Well, take the good stuff that applies to you and throw out the, the chaff. And finally, I do consulting as well to help people get their farms up and running, as well as a lot of uh, speaking around the world, at least before COVID, around the world to, you know, to do seminars, both for health and wellness, food seminars, farm seminars, regenerative ag, uh, master classes, different things. I'm scheduled right now to go to uh, South Africa for two weeks in January, and um, we'll see if COVID lets that happen. But uh, I, I do a lot of speaking around the, around the world, at least before COVID. You said you consult worldwide or you talk worldwide. So can your model be replicated regardless of what soil I have? So can your model be taken to Arizona? Can your model be taken to Indiana? Indiana is prairie, but say, um, <laughs> like you said, Africa. How yes. is it replicated? Oh, absolutely. All of this can be replicated. Now, that said, the principles will always need local customization. So the electric fence that we use, you may use a different kind of electric fence. The kind of wood that we use to build, you know, a portable chicken structure, uh, maybe you'll use a different kind of wood. You might make it bigger. You might make it smaller. You might not have a tractor. You may need to pull it with a yak or a water buffalo. So there are customized principles, but the principle of multi-speciation, complex symbiosis, movement, carbon, and essentially local, a foundation of local economy and local supply and demand, those are the benchmarks of what works. And they're applicable in the tropics, they're applicable you know, in the cold areas, Northern hemisphere, Southern hemisphere, wet areas, dry areas, those broad principles work everywhere in the world. Your products are all organic, obviously. What do you tell people who say, yes, especially in today's tough times, that organic food costs so much more? The first thing, whenever anybody complains about cost, and by the way, if you study marketing, you'll learn one of the kind of uh, benchmarks of price pointing that if if 10% of your customers aren't complaining about price, you're too low. So um, we don't necessarily assume if somebody complains about price that we're, you know, that something's wrong. So whenever anybody complains about price, here's what I want to do. I said, take, well, take me home with you. I'll, I'll go home. We're not going to see coffee. We're not going to see alcohol. We're not going to see 
lottery tickets. We're not going to see soft drinks, takeout foods, prepackaged processed foods. We're not going to see designer jeans, smartphones, widescreen TVs, vacations in the Caribbean, Disney World cruises, you know, golf clubs. The fact is that we spend a tremendous amount of money on things that we don't need. And, you know, just for fun, I've done some fun little, you know, blog posts on if everybody spent like me, you know, what would increase, what would decrease. And it's just an interesting exercise to kind of see, you know, the things that would increase, the things that would decrease. The fact is that very few people, almost everyone has discretionary income. And, uh, you know, we really don't need a lot of things that we purchase. And if healing the land and eating authentic food for your microbiome is really important to you, you'll make a place to do it. It's amazing to me how many moms say it's too expensive, but they have no problem at all taking their four-year-old four hours to a soccer tournament and then stopping for Happy Meals on the way home. That's one thing. The second thing is don't buy processed. Buy unprocessed and use your kitchen to prepare, package, process, and preserve food that's in its raw state when you get it. Buy bulk. You know, when you buy volumes of things, I mean, you don't have to buy Quaker oats in a little cereal box. You can buy a 50-pound bag of oatmeal, you know, and soak it and make it yourself. And you'll get it pennies on the dollar. If everybody purchased like me, there would not even be a breakfast cereal aisle in the supermarket. It wouldn't exist. And so, you know, there are aspects here of changing your buying. You don't need a $50,000 car. You know, you can drive a $20,000 car or a $15,000 car. The fact is, we have a lot more discretionary income, discretionary money than most of us think. And it's just a matter of what you value and what you don't value. And the COVID has definitely taught us about the excesses that we had in our lives. Yes, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, for all of its devastation and frustration with COVID, it has definitely, can I say it has brought us home? And, you know, for decades now as a culture, as a sophisticated Western culture, we've essentially made home as if it's, you know, a pit stop on the way to things that are important in life rather than the launch pad and the foundation for what is actually important in life. And I, I think COVID has actually, you know, helped to secure that as a nesting fact in our lives. It's uh, quite good. And how much do the farm subsidies have to do with the non-organic farmers. So do you think your uh, playing field is level? Because you don't get any subsidies. <laughs> That's correct. Uh, no, the playing field is not level. And, uh, you know, if, if I could be king for a day, I would just simply abolish the USDA. No government agency has ever been as successful at destroying its clientele as the USDA. So there's no need for it, no reason for it. Just get rid of it. But um, every time they intervene in the marketplace, it, it skews the playing field and makes it more difficult for small producers, innovative producers, and the actual uh, innovative answers to the problems that they create. So it's been really pretty impressive that you have, you, your family, your father, um, have all innovated. And now your kids are part of Polyfarm. Is that correct? Yes, our son Daniel now runs day-to-day -day -day operations, and I'm just a figurehead. <laughs> Time to relax now. Yes. 
how did you convince them to join the family business? It's so hard. Like kids want to like run away the moment they get an opportunity. Right. So I think the most important thing is to have a sacred mission. Young people are attracted to noble, righteous, sacred missions. And the problem is most farmers don't even understand what their own mission is and don't articulate it. Most farmers are just growing stuff to dump into a system that doesn't appreciate them, respect them, or honor them. But we, by direct marketing, had this customer base that even from the day the children were extremely small, would tell our children, oh, our family depends on you for our food and our health, and we thank you for you know producing this, blah, blah, blah. And they grew up with this emotional reinforcement and spiritual affirmation of the nobility of our cause. In addition to me being a flaming evangelist for healing food, healing our community. And so that combination creates vision, creates mission, And who doesn't want to be a part of a profound, sacred mission? On that note, thank you so much, Joel, for coming on our show. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. You're most welcome. If you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show, send us a message on our Facebook or Instagram page. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. Like, share, and subscribe to our Instagram or Facebook page at Mindful Businesses Podcast. We recorded this podcast in Lafayette, Indiana. Tatum Gale composed the music for this podcast. This is Vedya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.